we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Hello and welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. I'm Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies, filling in this week for Mark Krikorian. Our subject is identity theft, and my guest is retired police officer James Scott of Wakefield, Massachusetts. Welcome, Jimmy. Thanks for having me, Jessica. So back in September, we published a podcast featuring Ben Weingarten of Real Clear Investigations, which explored the problem of identity theft by illegal aliens for employment purposes. And this week, we're going to look at another aspect of the problem, namely identity theft for criminal purposes, especially drug trafficking. Jimmy, you've worked on this issue in law enforcement for more than a decade and helped expose the problem in New England to the public and other law enforcement agencies and and, and policymakers in Massachusetts. And you developed an original program and methodology that can be used to detect the identity theft by criminals that is rampant and happening right under our noses. And this is a program that's produced significant results in New England, especially in busting opioid trafficking and welfare benefits fraud. So, Jimmy, first tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you got into this issue. So I started my law enforcement career back in the 80s with the uh, United States Air Force, the law enforcement specialist. I stayed there 33 years, got into civilian police in the 80s, and around 2011, I came back from a deployment from Iraq. I went back to work in Saugus, Mass., where I was a full-time officer. And I had seen the issues of the heroin epidemic before I left. And when I came back about eight months later, nothing had changed. It was actually even worse. I had the question in my head was, where is all this heroin coming from? And I was aware that there was an issue regarding identity theft and license fraud. Both, I realized, go hand-in-hand, and both are state and federal crimes. So I started reaching out to some people, Social Security investigator, friend of mine from the DEA, asking questions. And I realized that both those crimes, identity theft and license fraud, left behind a significant crime scene. And I started teaching myself how to identify that crime scene, what it looked like when someone stole someone else's real and matching name, date of birth, and social. What kind of cases were you seeing this on? Can you describe something that you encountered? Sure. The vast majority of the cases that I've been involved in since 2011, 2012, involved drug trafficking. Mm -hmm. Was it that you were arresting people and you were seeing that they had some kind of bogus documents? Or or what exactly were you noticing that tipped you off to this problem? What was happening is the, like any good organization to include UPS or FedEx, you need good employees. And the the drug cartel is, is no different. They need employees to work for their organization to transport and distribute and sell their product, primarily heroin and fentanyl. So in order to do that and hide in plain sight, they need to appear as a U.S. citizen. They may have entered the country legally or illegally, 
may have gotten caught at the border at one time and successfully made it back in. But they need to be able to hide in plain sight. They need to be able to drive around. So this has been going on, the criminal use of false identities, which I don't like that term. That comes from a book that was published in 1976 by the Department of Justice, studying stolen identities being used around the United States. That book is maybe still online. I, I got mine on uh, Amazon. So the drug cartel wannabe employee needs a real and matching stolen identity. doesn't belong to him. That name, date of birth, and social has to match, belong to a real person. And then the imposter wannabe has to walk into a registry of motor vehicles, fill out an application, give us that stolen identity in the form on his application, name, date of birth, and social, allow us to take his picture. And then early on through the vetting process, there was really not much vetting going on. And once they obtain that driver's license with their picture on it, it's a real document. It's a real driver's license. So what I teach the officers and agents and analysts and dispatchers, I teach them how to rip open that identity behind the driver's license. And we've been very successful. Aha. So that what they're doing is stealing the identity of a real U.S. citizen, basically taking over that identity or using it themselves. Correct. Okay. And this is especially important in places like Massachusetts, where an illegal alien can't get a driver's license legally. Until recently, it was prohibited for illegal aliens to be issued driver's licenses, not like California or Illinois. That's correct. So they need to be able to hide in plain sight immediately in order to work for the, for the cartel. So in that driver's license and or state ID, it, 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 most of the time it's a license. That enables them to get pulled over, get arrested for whether it's drunk driving or shoplifting, uh, drug trafficking. And they're using the victim's stolen identity, and they're able to, to hide from their real identity. So I started teaching to a small amount around 20, 2013, 2014, and applying it myself while I was on the road, and I started making arrests. Early 2014... I got a phone call from the State Department. Again, I, I'm a patrolman just north of Boston, making arrests for license fraud. And I got a call from the State Department, and we ended up having lunch. And they said, what do, you, what do you want to learn from me? And they said, you wouldn't have had any idea to know this, but some of your police reports and arrests you've been making have made it to a number of people. And you've exposed not only identity theft and license fraud, but many of the imposters, I had to come up with a name for them, not only have they had driver's licenses or a state ID, but they also obtained a U.S. passport, again, using a stolen identity. This is so significant and such a great thing for the cartels and their operatives to have, because if their foreign nationals who've been in the country illegally, maybe have been deported before and have a record with immigration, getting this new identity and a new passport now they can move in and out of the country on this new identity and move around everywhere else locally with the new driver's license, right? Correct. This is how they hide in plain sight. And so if they get arrested again, it's going to be under a different name. Okay, so now let's get back to how you're figuring out what to do about it. So what I teach is the quality of the stolen identity can 
leave behind a significant crime scene. It's sort of like, and I talk about it in the class, you would never walk onto a used car lot blindfolded with a bunch of cash in your pocket and purchase the first vehicle you bump into and never take it for a test drive. Well, the quality of the identity could be a problem for the imposter wannabe because they have people that are stealing these identities. But what the imposter wannabe does not know if they're given it free or they, they purchase that stolen identity, they don't know the history behind that identity. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like car, doing a Carfax on a car you're interested in. You know, Carfax will tell you how many accidents and that sort of thing. Is there a criminal record attached to that name, date of birth, and social that they're stealing? You know, kids, married, where that person lives. So we take advantage of that when an imposter appears in front of us. We look for a number, there's really four key indicators to identify the presence of an imposter. And one of the first things we use is, we call it a double hit, the FBI number. When anybody is arrested, booked, and fingerprinted, that arrest is documented on their fingertips. Their fingerprints are sent to the FBI, and if they have never been arrested before, then that person is assigned a -a one-of-a-kind FBI number just like a VIN number on a vehicle. There should never be two VIN numbers anywhere in the country, one FBI number or one person. So I teach officers that while you're on a traffic stop, we can query that database that's owned by the FBI. It's a nationwide arrest database, currently about 77 million criminal arrest fingerprints slash FBI numbers in that database. And law enforcement has access to that even during a traffic stop. So if I'm an imposter and I steal what we call a dirty package, I steal a identity that's been significantly compromised, the victim of the identity theft and the vast majority of our victims are U.S. citizens from Puerto Rico. If that person has been arrested for drunk driving and domestic abuse, the officer can see that during the traffic stop. He can see that someone has been arrested with a specific FBI number and the same name, date of birth, and social as the person I have stopped. That officer now may engage that person in a question saying, hey, have you ever been arrested before? And the operator with, with the mass license may say, no, I've never been arrested before. But yet the officer is looking at someone with the same name, date of birth, and social has been arrested in Puerto Rico for you know, drunk driving or domestic abuse. And the officer will ask that person, are you sure you've never been arrested before? And they're not going to know. So the officer may say, so you've never been arrested before in Puerto Rico for drunk driving or domestic abuse. Now, the, you know, obviously the person's going to be nervous. But so, again, it's like Carfax. It's like buying a used car. It's the same way with the imposters when they steal and activate that stolen identity. They're not going to know the history behind it. But once they get arrested using it and they show the driver's license during the arrest, they are going to get booked under that stolen identity. Now, the officers at the time may not know it. If it's the the imposter's first arrest, his fingerprints will also be sent to the FBI to look for a match of his his 10 digits, his 10 fingertips. If there's no match, the FBI will assign him an FBI number. All individuals are assigned a unique one of a kind. FBI number, again, just like a VIN. So that's another key indicator that we see. If we see two or more people 
in the FBI database that have been arrested somewhere in the country using the same name, date of birth, and social, we will see two different FBI numbers, which means that's two different people. Now we got to figure out who's the victim and who's the imposter. Whenever we see two FBI numbers and the same name, date of birth, and social security number, and that's the key is the social, mm-hmm. two people are using the same social, that's not supposed to, that's not supposed to happen. One of them is an imposter. And that is the power of our criminal justice databases based on biometrics, but also what makes this a great tool in law enforcement because the cases of imposters that you're focused on are people who are getting arrested. And one thing about where they're getting these identities also, I think, makes them more vulnerable. You have found over time that the most common types of identities that are used by the drug traffickers are Puerto Rican identities. Can you talk just a little bit about why that is so and how that helps in this case? So that was identified way back in the criminal use of false identification, 1976 Department of Justice study. I have the book here right in front of me. Great, great read if you can get it. That talks about also the Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. Those two, I refer to them as cookie jars, those two databases since the 70s have been taken advantage of. They talk about shoeshine boys at one time over in Puerto Rico selling Puerto Rico birth certificates for $50. Yeah, notoriously insecure as far as safeguarding the PII, the personal information that's in them. Yep. So historically, that's always been a problem down in Puerto Rico. And again, the thing to remember is, you know, Puerto Rican citizens, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. They have named dates of birth and social security numbers. Mm -hmm. It's just unfortunately over the years that their databases, whether it's their demographic offices have been compromised, whether it's police records in Puerto Rico is full of real name, dates of birth, and social security numbers, and their registry of motor vehicles Mm -hmm. has, you know, millions of real matching name, dates of birth, and social security numbers. So it's, it's really an opportunity for what we call the package broker who is responsible for getting these real and matching name, dates of birth, and social security numbers. You can't make up a name, date of birth, and social and walk into any registry of motor vehicles. So that There's a vetting process with the Social Security Administration. You don't see it, but it's, it's done by a computer, and some people refer to it as a match, no match. And what's being done during the licensing process is that social security number that's being presented along with the name, date of birth is being vetted by Social Security, and it's done, you know, 15, 20 seconds. And It'll say match or no match. Yep, that's a good social, and it belongs to Jessica Vaughn. Good to go to give her the license. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that the real Jessica that's at the Massachusetts registry applying for a driver's license, her first one at age 35, one of our other key indicators of possible presence of an imposter, when people get their first driver's license. I couldn't wait to turn 16 to go in and get my license. Yep. Same was true of my kids, probably your kids and you. That That's a red flag for people trying to detect imposters. One other thing about the, the Puerto Rican social security numbers I just want to mention. This fraud is so notorious that, that a number of years ago, the government of Puerto Rico actually kind of recalled all of their social security numbers and made all the citizens of Puerto Rico reapply 
to validate their number because they had been yep. so compromised. The State Department years ago reported that by far the number one type of passport fraud involved use of Puerto Rican social security numbers by other foreign nationals. And so if you're a drug trafficker from the Dominican Republic, for example, that's a good one for you to try to use because it's plausible that this name would fit your ethnicity when you go into a Department of Motor Vehicles to apply for a license. I also heard from some sources that a lot of these are sold by inmates in Puerto Rico, that there's a thriving trade in the selling of identities by inmates in Puerto Rico because they figure they're not using their information, I guess. They can sell it to another criminal. But again, that's what helps mainland law enforcement agencies figure this out because that's going to be that case you talked about where you get a double hit in the FBI fingerprint database. You've got some criminal sitting in prison in Puerto Rico who sold his package to a Dominican drug trafficker. And so if that Dominican gets arrested, there is going to be one of those double hits that occurs. But the U.S. stateside police officer looking at that record needs to be alert as to why that might be the case. And that's what you're trying to help people do, correct? Correct. Prior to 2011, I really knew mostly none of this. I never knew about a double hit. So I've been teaching. I was down in Missouri a few weeks ago. I was down in Texas in March. So I've been doing some traveling around the country and all over New England. And I have not found anyone that has really received any sort of training regarding identity theft and license fraud, and especially how to read the results of of III, the nationwide arrest database. And when we teach people, the bad guys pay. We take some really, really bad people off the road. Now, you had mentioned benefits. So it's not only drug trafficking. We, we also have identified people, imposters, who for decades have been collecting mass health, EBT, Section 8. We've even had a couple that have voted, all using this stolen identity. So the dollar amount has been significant. Channel 5 Boston recently did a story with Homeland Security here in Boston. They had identified over the past three years just over 100 imposters. And my encouragement, I asked Channel 5, I said, ask, ask the dollar amount. And it took them a while. But just about over 100 imposters over a three-year period were responsible for $3.1 million in stolen various benefits, state and federal benefits. Wow. That's just 100 known imposters. 100 known imposters in just a couple of years access more than $3 million worth of stolen welfare benefits, health care, Section 8, et cetera. That's an enormous number. So if state and local governments just went after a fraction of this, focused on the, you know, the worst of the worst doing this, Correct. It would not only make a difference in drug trafficking, but also in welfare fraud. Tell us some more of, of the cases that you have seen, personally worked on, or people who've taken your training have encountered and busted on this, just to give our listeners an idea of exactly who is being targeted by this. Sure. We had a mass trooper recently come to the class. September 1st, he came to the class. September, eight days later, on a traffic stop. He ends up making an arrest of a Colombian drug trafficker for license fraud. 
identity theft, and I think he recovered about 30 grams of cocaine and about $5,000. And that was eight days after attending the class. He was able to apply what he learned and take this guy right off the road. And he was also a previous deport. We teach you how to read III, and he was able to see that there was an encounter at the border where this guy was arrested, booked, and fingerprinted by Border Patrol and released. But that interaction was tattooed to his fingertips. <laughs> it's sort of like carrying around your booking record, and it's super glued to your fingertips. But you can't see it. It's invisible until you read it using a fingerprint scanner. And that's what I teach officers how to read the results of a fingerprint scan. So we're also here in Massachusetts. We're number one in the country for altered fingerprints. We have the most known, just under 900 illegal aliens who are the vast majority of them are drug traffickers, many of them previously deported, but they make an effort to scrub that FBI number off their fingertips. 900 in New England? I think they're all trying to get around your system, Jimmy. <laughs> Correct. That's why we love facial rec so much. The term I use in the class is the third thumbprint. You know, everyone has two thumbs, but facial recognition as a biometric tool is so good that we've had great success using facial recognition. But recently, our state legislature cracked down on that and passed a law where only under extreme circumstances can the registry troopers still use facial rec. But facial rec is critical around the country. And if we ever lose that, boy, we're going to be in big trouble. Yeah, that's another good way to go after these imposters. So, so how many compromised social security numbers are in circulation, do you think? So I would say there's two different types of compromised social security numbers. There's the kind that are being used just to obtain a job that whether you're working you know, for a large employer or a small employer, but you present a day, maybe a fraudulent social security card, and you're using that to work. So that's one type of compromised social security number. The other one is what the imposter used. They have to activate that stolen identity, that package, the complete package, that name, date of birth, and social security number. They have to walk into the registry and try and activate that in the form of a driver's license or a state ID. Mm -hmm. How many of those? We did a conference you were present at a couple of years ago. We did that right before COVID. Mm -hmm. And our Border Patrol friends had no hesitation to say between five and eight million imposters across the country. Mm. That is five to eight million non-U.S. citizens who have walked into a registry of motor vehicles using a real identity, named Ada Burton Social, but not theirs, and obtained a valid driver's license or state ID. Mm. And and so you're just scratching the surface, even just going after the drug traffickers and other criminals. But this is, I think it's important for people to understand that there are victims in this. This is not just a victimless crime. For every imposter, there is one victim. And that messes up their credit history, their, you know, potentially ability to get a job. We recently had a case in Brockton, Mass., where a U.S. citizen stole the identity of another U.S. citizen. He just happened to be from Puerto Rico. And he had a good credit score. And he was in the dealership attempting to buy his second car in two days using this stolen identity with a good credit score. And what was bad for him, the credit company called the dealership and said, hey, didn't this guy buy a car yesterday? And the salesman was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and the credit company was like, we're showing that 
your customer bought a car yesterday and now he's trying to buy another one at your dealership. So the salesman literally jumped on Facebook and realized that the picture on the license that he had copied was a different person. So we called the Brockton police and guess who showed up? One of our police officers that came to the class. Excellent. He was able to apply the program right then and there and ended up making a great arrest. That's fantastic. This is such a powerful tool. So if people want to learn more, there's the, we had talked about earlier, the 2016 and 2017 BRIC report from the Boston Regional Intelligence Center. Mm -hmm. That is a report where they had come to, several BRIC members had come to my class in 2015, heard what I had to say, went back and said, oh my God, can, can all this be true? So they ripped into their drug arrest reports for the whole year of 2016 and realized that they had an identity theft issue was significantly generating the drug cartel and the trafficking in Boston. They did that report two years in a row. So that's a great one. Every year, the National Drug Threat Assessment is published by the Department of Justice and the DEA. That is very good reading because they'll talk about drug cartels and, and locations and stolen identities. And then the 2012 GAO, Government Accountability Office, Driver's License Security Study. That is very much eye-opening. I wish I had seen that, that 2012 report. I wish I had seen it in 2012. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't realize its existence till just a few years ago. But just so there's other people in the DOJ and the Government Accountability Office, and they've done great work, and they've, they've recognized this, this threat to the nation. And I have published some great material. So it's really all there for us. We just need to take advantage of it. So one of the things that you've developed since retiring is this formal training program. Can you tell our listeners how to find out more about that training program? Sure. I, I mostly teach in New England. I have a website, which is I'm going to be upgrading, identifyingtheimposter.com. And imposter, I spell with an O-R. And that, that gives some class dates. But it really, really needs to be expanded. When I was down in Missouri a few weeks ago, I was shocked by five people from the Kansas Department of Motor Vehicles. And they had saw that I was doing the presentation. And they stayed for an hour after, after my hour and a half presentation. And I was shocked. I'm like, Kansas? And they go, yeah, we're overwhelmed. We can't keep up with it. The identity theft and fraud issue is rampant in the Midwest. It's, so it's every state, every state has a problem, just like every state has altered fingerprints. We do not know how many altered fingerprints there are around the country, but we do know that the FBI told us every state has them. So every state has imposters. We just don't know how many. But if we get the databases talking to each other, because if the imposter gives us his stolen identity when he gets arrested, we can see that. If the victim has also been arrested of the identity theft, then we can see double. It's sort of like playing poker in the middle of a poker game. If on the flop cards, all of a sudden two ace of spades come out at the same time, mm. and it's a regular poker game and a regular deck of cards, you should never TC two ace of spades or two jack of hearts. That's what I teach. And I, I teach them how to see the two or three jack of hearts. And it's like, that's not supposed to happen. This is a huge problem. And this should not be just on 
local police, though? I mean, is there something that state policymakers or lawmakers can can do to help with this? If they're really interested in cracking down on benefit fraud and identity theft and, and taking care of the victims and their credit scores and that sort of thing. I mean, think about the victim. What if, what if the victim has a secret or top secret clearance and his identity stolen and then the, the imposter actually gets arrested using that identity? Yeah, we've seen cases in Puerto Rico where the guy can't get a gun permit because of his drunk driving arrest here in Massachusetts. And he's never been to Massachusetts. The victim's never been to Massachusetts. Or the gentleman in Florida that I have the story of, he got arrested twice because he was wanted for drug trafficking up here in Massachusetts. Well, guess what? The gentleman in Florida, who I spoke to over the phone, he's never been to Massachusetts. But someone up here has used his name, date of birth, and social, and had a drug trafficking warrant. So, yeah, there, there is an awful lot that the government can do. When they realize that every state has a database, a driver's license database, let's say Massachusetts has a driver's license database with 3 million name, dates of birth, and social security numbers in it. Well, there's another database that has name, date, birth, and social securities in it, and that's called, again, III, Interstate Identification Index. That's the National Arrest Database owned by the FBI. And in our booking rooms, when we arrest someone, we, we ask them their name, we ask them their date of birth, height, weight, eye color, hair color, social security number if they have it. And that is all recorded, attached to their fingerprints during the booking process and sent and maintained by the FBI. Well, what if two databases talk to each other? This is what I call a super list concept. When you have two or more different databases talk to each other, it spits out the fraud. This was done a few years ago in Massachusetts by Operation Double Trouble, Homeland Security folks. What they did is, I think it was 2016 or 2017, they took a six-month period here in Massachusetts, and they said, okay, we want to look at everyone here in Massachusetts for that six-month period that used their mass health benefits. And then they reached out to Puerto Rico, and they said, we want you to give us that same six-month time frame, all the people that use their medical benefits, state, state or Commonwealth-sponsored medical benefits, and give us their name, dates of birth, and social security numbers. And they did. And they compared them. And what they saw was over 125. Mm-hmm. What they saw was James Scott in Massachusetts, Mass Health paid to fix his broken ankle during a six month time frame in 2016. Well, wait a minute. James Scott, same name, Data Britain Social in Puerto Rico, he's getting his diabetes medicine paid for every 30 days in Puerto Rico. Mm. They pulled the license photo if there was one in Puerto Rico. They pulled the license photo in Massachusetts, and it was two different people. That was Operation Double Trouble. And this is just a six-month period, how many you can find, 125 imposters, on the dole who are using public-funded benefits. Correct. That is just a scratch on the iceberg. Correct. One of our very recent cases was a search warrant out in um, Worcester by one of our very good officers signed to a task force. And uh, two imposters, one with a mass license, one with a New Jersey license. And he wrote a document cert warrant. He knew they were imposters. We helped him out. And he sees seven kilos of fentanyl and $1.3 million in cash. Mm. So this is clearly something that could be used to make a, a, a dent in the 
horrific opioid and fentanyl epidemic that's gripping the country now. Not only could you identify this this sort of fraud that's enabling the drug cartel, you could also stop it. Right. Right at the registry. Once once you realize how they have been beating us for decades, it's all right there for us. Right. In the in the Department of Motor Vehicles at the state level. Well, thank you, Jimmy. You know, this has been very eye-opening. I do want to talk with you quickly about one more thing. This year, the Massachusetts legislature passed a bill to give driver's licenses to illegal aliens, you know, over the governor's veto and despite indications that this was not widely supported by voters. Now there's a ballot initiative in play to overturn the law on Election Day coming up in a couple weeks. What are the problems with that law that the legislature passed? And what do, what do you think about the ballot question? Do you think that has a chance of passing? So some of the issues right away that I'm, that I'm aware of is the registry went to the governor when this law was passed. And they told him, we cannot verify any of these alleged documents that are going to be presented in the future for for an illegal alien to get a driver's license. We can't verify a birth certificate from Spain. We can't verify a, an alleged previous license from Costa Rica or Guatemala. Mm-hmm. And the registry, just for folks who don't know, the, the registry is the Department of Motor Vehicles. That's the, what it's called in Correct. Massachusetts. So that's the big issue. We, we, got, we can't verify the documents. We, we don't know who these people are. Now, they already have two types of licenses so far. You have your real ID license, which is supposed to be more secure than a regular standard license. Real ID, you can fly on an airplane, a standard license, you can't. So we're now going to create a third type of license where the troopers have told the governor that we can't verify any of the documents, nor do we have the staff that is going to speak these numerous different languages. How are they going to address that? That's a significant cost of that. I have been told that this license will look exactly like the standard license. Now, the real ID license has a little yellow star on the top right-hand corner, but I'm being told that this license for illegal aliens will look exactly like a standard license. Now, that also creates an issue of motor voter, where when you get a driver's license, you're able to register to vote. That question really hasn't been answered. It's been brought up that once an illegal alien gets his driver's license, he's going to be able to vote. That is a, that is a significant problem. Right, because the law does not allow town clerks who handle voter registration to ask questions of the registry about whether the person with this license is a citizen or not, which is correct. kind of important when you're registering people to vote. It is. I have been told that they will be subject to facial recognition. So in other words, very quickly, facial recognition is normally that that computer turns on at midnight and it looks at, again, it's like that card game. Has this person been here in the registry before in mass and or there's roughly 25 other states are in this at the moment? Not all of them, but they flip over the deck of cards and they're like, wait a minute, there's a Jessica. Jessica has a driver's license here in mass, and she also has a a license in Rhode Island under a different name, but the the pictures are the same person. So I, I have been told that they will be subject to facial recognition. And the other issue I am aware of is I see the commercials on TVs regarding they may take driver's ed and the ability to drive, and it's going to allow them to drive and, and go to work. Well, well, what do you mean going to work? They don't have a social security number, so 
if you're promoting this for them to get driver's license so they can go to work. It's not legal for an employer to hire someone who is not eligible to work. But yet, but yet the commercials will be saying that this, this will allow illegal aliens to, to, to go to work. That's, that's the goal. The, not, not so much safe driving and getting insurance. It's to get them to work. So what do you think? Does the right. ballot initiative or the ballot question have a chance of, of passing? Yeah, you never know here in Mass, but I, I, I think I've talked to a lot of people about it, and, and a lot of people realize that they're not comfortable with three different standards. It's like, I have to be held accountable. I have to do certain things in order to get my driver's license. And I had to go three times, you know, you hear the stories. I had to go three times to order to comply with the Real ID Act, and they didn't like this, they didn't like that. You know, I had to go and get a, a new birth set. So people don't like being held to different standards. It should be, you know, one standard for everybody. Right. And yet they're going to accept these sketchy documents from a foreign country that nobody can verify. So I, I like to think it's probably going to go 70-30 against. Ooh. People just don't like the idea that being being held accountable, and some people aren't held accountable, you know, the different standards out there. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jimmy. I hope more people will look into this problem of imposters and the problems created for victims, the problems created for law enforcement, and the integrity of our driver's licenses and social security numbers, and the link between this problem of identity theft and other problems in our society like drug trafficking, benefits fraud, and so on. It's been great to talk to you about this, and we will be on the lookout for some more of these cases and more law enforcement agencies taking advantage of your training program. Thanks for coming on. Very good. Thank you, Jessica. And finally, for this episode, I'm going to add just a brief segment on another important issue, which is temporary visa issuances. The State Department has released the last monthly tally of visa issuances for the fiscal year that just ended a month ago on September 30th. And what they show is that Visa issuances overseas are quickly bouncing back after a near shutdown during the pandemic. In 2022, nearly 7 million temporary visas were issued, which is a huge increase over the 3 million issued in 2021 and 4 million issued in 2020. But it's still below the 9 million annual visa issuances that we saw in 2018 and 2019. And we need to pay attention to this for two reasons. First, more temporary visas means more travel to the U.S., which is good, but it also means more overstays, which are a major contributor to illegal immigration. Visa overstayers, we think, make up about 40% of the illegally residing population in the country. Hundreds of thousands of people overstay their visas each year. The second reason this is important is that many of these temporary visas are for workers who often end up replacing U.S. workers or who are exploited and even trafficked through these legal work visa programs. Interestingly, the largest category of visa issuances last year was the H-2A category, which is for farm workers. It's now up to 300,000 visas that were issued in 2022. The second largest program or category is the J-1 visa, which is for exchange workers. It's supposed to be a cultural diplomacy program, but it's really mainly a work program. 
with mostly resort workers and restaurant workers coming in. The second largest category last year, with almost as many visas issued as H-2A, was the J-1 exchange worker category. It's supposed to be a cultural diplomacy program, but in reality, it's just another temporary work visa program, bringing in mostly resort workers and restaurant workers. And even in one notorious case at a college in Iowa, we had students from South America who were working in a dog food factory, which they didn't think was a very good cultural experience. So followed by the H-2A and the J-1 categories are the white collar categories of H-1B and L-1. And the H-1B issuances in 2022 were about 150,000. And the L-1s, which are a similar type program, were about 75,000 issued last year. Also were 120,000 seasonal H-2B work visas issued, which is the unskilled non-farm seasonal labor category made up primarily of landscapers and factory workers. All of this data can be accessed through our data portal on the CIS website at cis.org. You'll find a button for the data portal right on our homepage. The new Congress will need to keep an eye on these programs, both because of the fraud and the trafficking that occurs, but also the effects on our labor market, and especially because the Biden administration has shown interest in offering these temporary visas as a substitute for permanent immigration that they cannot get passed through Congress. That's it for Parsing Immigration Policy this week. Tell us what you think. Feel free to get in touch either through our website or on Twitter. My handle is at Jessica V underline CIS. This is Jessica Vaughn, and thanks for tuning in. 